Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the OIG Roundtable. Thanks again. I always want to thank people for tuning into our weekly podcast, whether you catch that podcast on our newsletter as a link or if you subscribe uh, on LinkedIn to us and you get it off of LinkedIn or something along those lines or wherever you get it, if you get it on Spotify, if you get it uh, off of one of the other services, YouTube or what have you, we always appreciate you tuning in. And we really do take the comments, criticisms and suggestions to heart. And we appreciate that. We have a full group of people for today's uh, roundtable. Uh, as always, I'm appreciative of having uh, three of my close personal and professional friends here. Wade McFall, retired assistant special agent in charge from the LA field office and now a member of our SAU investigative team. Matt Kachansky, retired executive from HHSOIG and the retired Northeast UPIC director and now one of our senior managers on our investigative team. And Jason Eisengrein, who is Matt's counterpart, both at the OIG and also the Western UPIC director, and also now our special director in charge working on special projects for a bunch of our clients. Uh, and I am still Eric Rubenstein, the senior director of litigation, fraud, waste, and abuse support. Uh, and you know, today we want to talk about, um, we'll call them the three CMs, case management, communication mastery, and career mentoring. And I want to start with career mentoring. And I want to start um, with Jason, because Jason, for those of you that follow the podcast and know, I've known Jason um, and Matt um, and Wade later on in my career. But um, certainly, Jason was my mentor um, when I started off as an agent. I got hired in February of 1997, and I was introduced to Jason. And he was my professional mentor for a number of years, even when I was done being mentored. And I still look to Jason for advice and counsel. And um, so I want to start with you, Jason, because um, career mentoring is an important piece of anything, whether it be an SIU, whether it be at the OIG or, or any of that. Um, and I can't ever um, think of any better way to have been trained on the basics of the job. And I was fortunate enough to have been a mentor to, um, you know, a countless number of agents. I really lost track of the number of people that I mentored in my 25 years um, at OIG or so. And um, to me, mentoring was an important thing. It, it taught me the foundations of what I needed to learn to be an agent. Um, and then I took that to heart when I was mentoring people. It was, to me, the most important thing that I did at the OIG um, because it helped to create the environment by which others would hopefully be successful as well to create that foundation. But it really <clears throat> doesn't it really doesn't start or end with the one year probation or the new hire or anything like that. You know, at OIG, there was actually a written policy on mentoring and there was a formal mentoring program. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, you want people to be successful. The agency wants you to be successful. The organization where you work wants you to be successful. You were hired uh, for a reason. And so mentoring doesn't just end when you're done with your one year or the checklist. And the fact that there should be ongoing mentoring and ongoing training in that and the prospect of there being uh, a standard operating procedure or a policy or just some guide um, really does set a, a positive foundation going forward. So I want to I want to get some thoughts from you about, you know, sort of uh, how you saw yourself as a mentor both at OIG and then through all of your progression through OIG, and then even you know moving on to some of your other positions that you had, particularly at the UPIC and even now, uh, the mentoring piece is something that you can't ever uh, negate and career mentoring, the first CM we're gonna talk about is an important piece of that. Thank you, Eric. And first and foremost, mentoring is a two-way street. By no means uh, was this just Jason, Jason, 
um, providing Eric with some information to be successful at his new position. It was also um, very enlightening to me. He has experiences that he brought to that job. Uh, for instance, he worked for uh, U.S. probation for a period of time, a lot of written reports there. And frankly, as I started reviewing Eric's work product, it was teaching me some things that I needed to to more finely, uh, finely tune. So it's definitely a two way street. The second thing about mentoring is that it it does need to be official. And I hate to you know have to throw a wet blanket on anything as positive as mentoring because it is. 100% needed in every organization. So that said, though, I can tell you that there were more than a few times that uh, people would come to me at were mentors and say and say like, well, it, you know, is there additional compensation for mentoring? You know, what is my responsibility for mentoring? And so you need to have a program, and it needs to be part of the the um, the uh, onboarding process. So, um, for instance, in in um, in a job interview, I'd be asking someone, "What do they think about mentoring?" And get a you know get a feel for right there. Are they going to be able to do that? Because there are some people that can you know operate very independently, but not so much so in groups. And certainly, mentoring is a group. Uh, the other thing that I think is really important about mentoring is that it's a quality assurance measure. So, you know, um, obviously there are terms of art in our industry, uh, such as peer review, and more or less that's what mentoring is. And it gives an opportunity to intervene in nonconformities and process improvements at an early stage and at a ground level. So, uh, I'll leave it there because I, I I feel that groups are doing this now more and more informally, but um, I still think there needs to be a more formal approach to it. That's a that's a good point, right? I mean, because part of that is also going to be to establish basic metrics of competence. You know, at OIG, when you were a new agent, some of the things that you were required to do in that first year to have success were really going to be things that your mentor needed to help facilitate, right? Being in the affiant on a search warrant, testifying in grand jury, um, being the team leader on an arrest or a search warrant or something like that. Um, those are important pieces of the puzzle that a senior person needs to be the guide to, to get you from point A to point B, right? As a new employee, you don't know where the executive washroom is. Right. So you need someone to hold your hand and, and get you from point A to you know to point B. The one thing that you know you had said early on in my mentoring, and I remember a lot of the eyes and grindisms, as everybody likes to call them, is you know, you you, you would constantly remind me that you were my guide. <clears throat> you weren't my boss, you weren't my supervisor, you weren't my manager, you were my guide. And if I chose to take your advice, it would be beneficial. If I chose not to take your advice, it would be detrimental, but that was a path that I was looking to take. And I'll never forget one of my first interview reports I wrote up, um, you had a lot of comments. Uh, there was a lot of red. And I remember you said, don't worry, red is the color of hope. I hope you do better next time. And um, and there's there's truth in that, because while while I, I know I was a good writer 
from my previous job at the probation department. I knew I was a good writer, but you know, it's not about being a good writer. It's learning how to write for your audience. And the greatest of writers still need to be educated on that. So it really is. And the two-way street is true. I, you know, I learned a lot over the years during my mentoring time as well. And you do take a lot from that. You become introspective. You learn a lot about yourself along the way and maybe learn how to, you know, deal with different people in different ways. So it's, it isn't an evolution, but you're, you're hundred percent right. It certainly does need to be something that is, uh, that is formalized so that there are metrics that people can learn to grow from within those within those metrics. And so, you know, from there, I want to wait, I want to go to you, because part of that is, you know, in the mentoring process is the next CM, which uh, which is communication mastery and being able to be a master communicator um, is, you know, in the mentoring process, in the investigative process, um, in the case presentation process. It's being able to impart your thoughts in a salient matter, manner, but also being able to understand who that audience is, right? And you know, you're a great example because you've you've been in as an OIG agent and then as a supervisor. So you're having to communicate upwards to management. And then as a manager, as an ASAC, you're kind of, you know, it's like the old commercial, my dream is to claw my way to middle management. You've got to deal with it from the bottom. <laughs> You've got to deal with it from the top. And then even now, you know, in the SIU space, it's an entirely different world where you're having to interact with the leadership of the SIU team, um, the Medicaid fraud control units, uh, the the Medicaid fraud division, the single state payers. Like it's it's, you know, in one day, while your job may not be different, the number of hats you're wearing on how you communicate will certainly shift. Yeah, definitely. And I think I think one of the key elements to communication going back to the OIG days, like you mentioned, is know your audience. I think um, people have a tendency to um, not really take that into consideration and probably go in with too much detail. If you're you're trying to get a certain um, aspect of the story across or of the investigation and we tend to get in the weeds too far I think and if you, you step back and instead of having a you know 15 minute conversation about it where you're kind of all over the place and I'm, I'm guilty of that too um, but really try and figure out which are the key elements that you're trying to get across do it in layman's terms um, you know we used to say like uh, Treat you, treat the your audience like they're they're like at a eighth grade level. You don't need to use big words. You don't need to impress them with all this stuff. You know, you're just trying to get whatever it is you're trying to get across in in like plain language. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I've um, that I've been doing lately is when I'm getting ready to have a, a conversation with someone. For example, if we have a, a like, for example, I was on the phone this morning with a law firm about a project, and um, it was very complicated. Uh, it was a 45 minute conversation. And when I say conversation, I mean the lawyer explaining what the issue was, was 45 minutes. Very, very complicated. I now need to impart that information to someone else about doing this project. And so what I did was I just, I took my four pages of notes and I honed it down to six bullet points so that when I have my conversation, I can have a really pointed conversation. And I think, you know, for me, some of my takeaways um, in in communication mastery is sometimes sitting down, having a thought process and not being short-sighted or long-sighted by having a note in front of me. 
I used to always think like, if I didn't have something in front of me, was somebody going to think that I didn't have command of the topic or of the broader subject? And what I've really come to learn over the years is that you can have amazing command of the subject and the topic, it'll come out organically, but having some bullet points that point you in the direction so that another Eisengrinism is, I always like to listen to the first 45 minutes of Jason's 10 minute story, is that so you don't have to have that happen. Uh, and I am guilty of it. I am, I am, I am, I am as, I am as Jason Eisengrin made me. Um, and so, yeah, there is, there is that. And, and having that, uh, having that ability to make those pivots in that communication is, is important. So Matt, I want to go to you because this kind of brings it kind of all together. Um, the third CM, and these are not in any particular order, but the third CM is case management. And mm -hmm. case management really does incorporate mastering communication to be able to impart your thoughts, right? Get them out and get your responses. Um, it really is that career mentoring. It's that going back and speaking to the subject matter experts on things and being able to understand, you know, where in the timeline your cases are and being able to appropriately master that case management. Absolutely. Yeah. Case case management is sort of a misnomer. It is actually people management. It's SIU management. The cases being the the focal point or the product that that that, that group is is putting forth. And that involves good communication throughout the ability to write and speak well and synthesize information and put it together in a package. As, as well as to be able to teach people to do that, to mentor them as to what are the expectations and how do you do that. But, but case management in its purest form is both individual case management and case load management. It's the individual's responsibility and it's the manager's responsibility to be able to manage an individual's caseload to make sure that they, they have what they can handle. They're handling things that they're that they're known subject matter experts in and not and not you know flailing at something they don't know anything about. And it's also the individual being able to have a case in front of them, create a plan, have it on a timely basis, be able to move through those steps effectively to get to get to the proper resolution as efficiently as they can, so that not only are they managing that case, they then can look at their entire caseload prioritize those things and and hit those steps for all of their cases in a timely and effective manner that they can manage that caseload, resolve cases, bring in new ones, good leads that you know that that are being developed, be able working with their manager and communicating with their manager, figure out are these leads worth pursuing again and bring those into the caseload. So it's this constant I don't want to say treadmill, but treadmill of cases that you're running through that, you know, you're being effective and productive. Doing that as an individual is great. The manager needs to see that happen on the holistic level for all of the investigators that are that are assigned to an SIU, that all of them are, are having that type of success. You know, and it, and it, it brings <clears throat> to mind, and I think particularly we see this with some of our smaller and our small to medium sized plans and i'm not even sure what the real definition is of a small or a small to medium plan but i think one of the things that we typically see is that when you take all three of these cms case management career mentoring and communication mastery that 
in in smaller groups, you would think that those three areas would be as equally as effective as they are in maybe a large SIU or a large organization, which has like a huge infrastructure. And what we find is that across the board, the problems that exist exist across the board that, um, you know, particularly in the larger organizations where people can be kind of swallowed up in the largeness of the organization. And is the mentoring really there? Is the career mentoring really there? Um, is is case management as good as it could be? Um, you know, what is that interact and interaction? And I think, you know, where we where we certainly see a lot of these is that there tends to not be a huge amount of case coordination between the payment integrity, the SIU policy. And I know we've talked about this a million times on our podcast is this integration of payment integrity, uh, fraud, waste and abuse from the SIU perspective, the medical part of it. Um, that those are all pieces where that integration becomes very important. So, Jason, I want to go to you for the last bit because, you know, I, I think sometimes we get lost in the sauce. Um, you and Matt ran UPICs. UPICs are essentially, for people that aren't inordinately familiar with it, UPICs, the Unified Program Integrity Contractors, there are only five in the country. Um, Jason and Matt ran two of the five. They are essentially the SIU for Medicare under traditional Part A and Part B. And they're behemoth, right? So, you know, Jason, you had uh, you had a large budget. You had a lot of employees. Uh, there's a lot of moving parts internally, externally. You have to report. There's CMS reporting, right? There's congressional reporting. All of that. How do you how do you deal with from an SIU? Because essentially, you were an SIU director on a more public scale than a commercial payer, right? Because everybody's looking at Medicare and everybody wants to point the finger at when the UPICs aren't doing their job. But how do you corral all of these different areas together to make sure that they really do work in a cohesive manner so that career mentoring, communication exists, and case management exists? Um, it can't just be putting all of the heads of a department into a conference room and saying, you know, in a gladiatorial way, go fight it out, right? Correct. Um, so there's the expression, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. So training and development, staff development, it, it, it I don't know. It, it reminds me probably somewhat random, but it reminds me of uh, building a new house and everyone waits to the end to do the landscaping and then the budget is all eaten up by the other stuff. And there's, you know, there's no bushes out in front of this big, beautiful home. So kind of the same thing. So build this big organization. If you haven't accounted for the fact that there's going to uh, need to be training and, and personnel development, you're selling yourself short. So, um, and I'll, and I'm, Look, uh, I'm definitely someone who likes to do things myself. I mean, frankly, for, for the first, uh, well, it was at least for the first 20 years of my federal career, I wanted nothing to do with supervising and directing anyone else. I really just wanted to do my own thing. And it's a it's a great way to, you know, to learn uh, on your own and prove something to yourself and all of that, but it doesn't really help the organization grow. And the long and short of it is that at the point in time where you start to uh, 
manage and direct other people. If you think the megalomania you've been enjoying for 20 years is going to sustain you through uh, through that part of your career, you're you're mistaken. You have to learn to have confidence in those that you're leading and directing. And that confidence comes from regular interaction, whether they are file reviews, whether they are formal meetings or informal meetings. And that goes back to the communication mastery, which just as a side note to that, uh, you know, that that's a lot harder than it sounds because there are some people that think that meetings are uh, the bane of their existence, and then there are others that think that they are something that the devil delivered to the earth. So, you know, how do you how do you manage that across that wide spectrum? It's a work in progress for me, and you know, I'm sure for most people. But you have to endure that to accomplish what it is that you need to do, which is have people that are working together. Gee, and everyone's going to get tired of the word team, of course, but to, you're satisfied that everyone truly is working as a team because it is a, a it's a force multiplier. So long and short of it is it's it's about training and career development and not to sound like a, a, a flirtatious plug for the organization, but Advise does do an excellent job of inserting itself as trainers for organizations that didn't, you know, think to have that landscaping uh, when they were building their organization and now need something right away. So uh, I've watched uh, both uh, Eric and Matt uh, in in several sessions and it goes really well. There needs to be role playing. It can't be just one person standing up in front reading from the the policy and procedure manual that has to be experiential um, uh, anecdotes that uh, give it some real context to what's important, but uh, it, it's definitely something that we can help with. Yeah, I think, you know, we highlighted three, uh, you know, CMs, but there's probably a dozen we can come up with on, uh, on, on, on other things. I mean, it's really, you know, some of these you know, I think the, the big question that we get asked when we're talking to some of our SIU clients is, what is this going to cost me? The reality is, is that these three things that we just brought up cost nothing, you know, outside of maybe having to have somebody from the outside come in and, and write the policy or write the standard operating procedure. Um, it shouldn't be a, that shouldn't be a, a, a bank well, breaker. Right. Just so to that point, it, it, it's a lot I don't know if it's easy, but it's it's more risky to develop what it's going to cost you if you don't do it, because if you haven't had to uh, report the loss of 600 PHI records to Congress uh, and, you know, uh, the person that lost the records, you know, says, well, no one ever trained me on this. You know, I mean, those are the worst case scenarios, but, right. you know, that cost is yep. very high. Yep. No. So it's right. It's the cost of doing something. But what is the greater cost of not doing something? And you typically don't know what the greater cost of not doing something is until that not doing something causes something to happen. <laughs> right. So you don't want to be that you don't want to be that mouse on the wheel. But, 
yeah, I mean, there, you know, there can be a, there can be a bunch of these. Um, so we're going to, we've got a little blog uh, on, on this. This was a little bit of a more detailed analysis, but um, Matt took some time and wrote a quick blog, which will be in our newsletter on Friday. So when you get that newsletter, you can read Matt's sort of summary of what we just talked about. Um, and, and you can build on that for your own SIU and your other work. So as always, guys, I appreciate the time uh, and the insight that you guys bring to this podcast every week. And again, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. If you're not getting our newsletter, feel free to send us a note at hello at advise, A-D-V-I-Z-E, health.com. You can get our podcasts, our LinkedIn Live events that have been recorded previously from previous live events. You can get that all on the YouTube channel uh, and just do a search under YouTube. Um, next week, we've got a LinkedIn Live that's coming out. We're going to be talking about leads and weak leads lead to weak cases, which lead to poor recoveries, which leads to reduced ROI. So we're going to talk about some tips, hints, and tricks for leads. Uh, and for those of you that are familiar with the movie Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, you want the Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross leads all the time not some of the time. So weak leads don't get you where you need to be. And we'll talk a little bit about that a little bit more uh, in the coming week. So as always, thanks again for tuning in. Thanks to the three of you. And we'll see you on the next OIG roundtable.